0: Hey, Verbivores, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Verba Coffee Chat podcast. In this episode, Jared and Ryan sit down to answer your questions from their data-driven strategies presentation at the ICBA 2021 virtual conference. Hear how student purchasing trends have changed, inclusive access pricing versus opt-out correlation, and the evolution equitable access will create for campus stores.
1: Hey, Jared. Hello, Ryan. We're back. <laughs> we had to produce ICBA content. Everyone can listen to us for just a little bit longer as we answer <laughs> the questions that we did not answer from Data-Driven Strategies. So thank you to all of you who listen to Data-Driven Strategies and all of you who are joining us uh, for this podcast.
2: Yeah, I think we got a nice novel format here. Um, you know, we, With the 73 slides that we did for data-driven strategies, uh, we did not have a chance to get to all of the questions that we wanted to get to. I'm going to use this podcast to kind of walk through a couple of the big stats, but really to focus on, on the questions that got asked that we didn't get to answer. So let's do it. I think we're going to start with our uh, Verba Compare Student Shopping Data and Trends. Kind of one of the big news items here was that new and digital were up in the middle of the pandemic, and rental and used were down in the middle of the pandemic. We've been seeing this trend with used, especially over the last few years. Back in 2014, used was 46% of all units purchased through Compare, and it has been steadily declining every year since then, down to a record low of 25% this year. So really, you know, so much going into that from enforcement of third party marketplaces and fake copies of things down to physical distribution just being difficult in the middle of the pandemic. The rental stuff was even crazier, though. I mean, that's rental has been holding steady in the low 20 percent you know, basically also since 2014, but this year it kind of fell in half down to 12%. You know, I know that we've heard about stores just kind of killing their rental programs in the middle of the pandemic. I wonder if that's going to stick, but what a what a market decline there. One of the big new things that we did here was breaking down um, the quote unquote new category from campus stores. We've always said that that's a bit of a misnomer because we knew that there were things like printed access codes and bundled digital items um, in that new category rather than the pure digital category. But when we broke that down for the first time this year, we found that something like, what was it? It was 32% of all items that were in the new category were identifiably digital in some way, whether they were access codes, whether they were ebook bundles, et cetera. 52% of those items may have contained digital, but we just we couldn't identify it based on the title data. And so combine those things together, and I think one of our biggest findings this year is that for the first time, overall digital was the largest variant in our data set. So we got a good question about this that I think it'll be fun to dig into. With digital now having the primary market share, what is the best way to evolve how we track savings and affordability on our campuses? Brian, do you wanna first stab at that?
1: Sure. You know, I think that it's long been a discussion about like how much do course materials cost on campus. And a lot of the pressure has been put on stores to be like, oh, are you offering enough use? Are you offering enough rental? Change the format, the business model, the variant. The nice thing about everything moving on to being a digital platform is that these materials are more apples to apples about what you're getting. I think that as everything moves towards digital, and if I had to pick a year that I would have predicted would be the year that digital would be the plurality of sales. Had I thought that this was a possibility, I would have said the year of the global pandemic, where everyone was locked down. It does feel like digital, uh, a lot of the growth has been driven by inclusive access, which means that it's more and more the store's market share is going to be a larger market share of total purchases of course materials by students on a campus. And what that means is that we can use the purchases from the store as a more accurate barometer of how much is being spent on course materials on your campus. And if we're looking to track savings over time, I think that we need to provide stores with the tools and work with stores you know if you have ideas about this we'd love to hear from you on exactly what student expenditures are on course materials over time getting you know your total number of students and figuring out okay what does the average student spend dividing that up by division or major is kind of an interesting place to go um, looking at the average price of units sold over time looking at um the average price of units sold by particular publishers looking at publisher market share I think that The campus store, as you lose responsibilities about like buying physical inventory and shipping it in and distributing it, I think taking over a stronger role in the analysis of course materials, course material costs and learning outcomes is a really smart place for store managers to go and course material managers and saying over time, look at the growth of OER on our campus. Look at the growth of this big five publisher on our campus look whose prices are moving up and whose are moving down. And then using that to educate your campus about how to deal with the cost of course materials and measure how much students are spending, I think is the way that in the future we can look at it instead of just being like, are you offering enough rental books? It's what are students in overall spending on course materials on campus?
2: Yeah, I love this point that you just made about, um, you know, kind of putting savings data alongside learning outcomes data. We talk so much about how on the analytics side of things, there are benefits to either IA or EA just getting kind of a holistic view. It's it's less notable, or I, I think until now, how much more information we can get about pricing and student spend through these more consolidated programs. So, yeah, that's a really, really fun area to go down. And I agree that stores are, are incredibly
1: well-positioned to, to sort of be the analysts in chief on that. Yeah, and I guess perhaps in contrast to that, our next question has to do with the stores being cut out. It was asked, are there any numbers or just hunches about how publishers selling direct or impacting share of digital sales? This is a great question. It's one of those known unknowns, I think I might call it, uh, where we know it's happening, but we don't know to what extent it's happening. And it's honestly, we don't have great data on it, but this is a good place for us to reach. And as we get more involved and the stores, more involved in like the LMS, it might be a way for us to see if this is happening. I'd say that right now, Cengage Unlimited has been sold in partnership with stores, but I've always kind of thought that their goal is kind of like a Netflix subscription where like, yeah, Netflix doesn't pay a commission if you bring them a Netflix subscription, but I guess Amazon used to for Amazon Prime. And that's great the first time, but Obviously, their goal is to sell it to students every term that they are a student. And so I think maybe tracking your sales of Cengage Unlimited might give us a sense for when a publisher forms a direct relationship with a student, what is the end cost to the store in terms of market share and sales. I think, honestly, inclusive access has helped us a lot here. I imagine that before inclusive access, courseware would very frequently be sold outside the store. And because of the discounts and the opt-out available with inclusive access, I think much more frequently instructors are brought into the fold. I think the Overall comprehensive solution to this really is equitable access in the sense that, you know, if a publisher wants to sell direct outside the store and you have equitable access on your campus, it's like they're pitching the faculty member to tell students that even though this course material content would be covered by the equitable access fee, we'd like students to buy it outside of EA and pay additional dollars for it. And I just think instructors are going to see right through that and be like, I'll just put in the EA program. If a student wants to opt out and buy it directly from you, that's great. But overall, I know that when I assign it in the EA program, it's automatically included. So it's a better deal for students and it's a better deal for faculty.
0: We knew this last year would drive change in student purchase behaviors and digital prevailed with the largest market share for the first time ever. Keep listening as Ryan and Jared talk about the trends in inclusive access pricing, student opt-out behaviors, and the decline in opt-in participation.
2: Let's uh, move on to chapter two, inclusive access operational data. So one thing that we saw was just significant growth in eText as a share of our IA programs this year. So going from 28% of all IA units uh, in 2020 up to 37% of units this go around. So decided to spend a good chunk of time looking at at eText in particular, since it really feels like as these programs get more mature, eText becomes a larger part. And we found great savings on etext, um, you know, as we just talked about DLP as a primary metric for savings rather than you know looking at print. the average i a price for an etext was twenty five percent lower than DLP, so good solid savings on that. When we went to look at whether students were paying attention to that savings, however, when choosing to opt in or opt out, one of our findings was that there was no real discernible pattern here and so We got a question on this, which said, with no pattern between opt-outs and savings, would you conclude that the pricing model is stable and working? Presumably, if the pricing was higher, I think we would see a pattern of opt-out based on price. And Ryan, I thought you had good insight into this. You want to go
1: for it? I think there are two points to this that kind of cut against one another. The first is this is right that if the savings weren't there, we would see higher opt-out rates. And probably they're not just comparing it to the savings off DLP, but they're comparing it to the savings off of buying the book elsewhere. In a print format there, those savings are more dramatic and they're thinking about the absolute price of the item, not just its relative price. So, you know, does a $40 ebook pass muster for them? And it seems like it does. The second thing that I think maybe cuts against this and suggests a certain amount of price insensitivity is just that they, I think, students really appreciate the convenience. I think being a student, there's a lot going on. And I remember when I first like walked the stacks to find my books, I just wanted to make sure I got the right books. And that sounds like a not complicated thing. And it's maybe not, but it is like, I just want the book that's right for this class. Am I getting the right ones? Am I getting all of them? And this kind of solves any of that. As this chart shows, like there's savings off of DLP always in the inclusive access programs. It's automatically in the LMS, automatically downloads to my phone, to my computer. I think that they really appreciate the convenience here. You know, one thing to support this is that we found that the biggest reason for the participants in the UC Davis equitable access program that they cited in a survey this past fall was that even more than the price, they valued the convenience. They just loved that they had all their things They didn't need to worry about it. And inclusive access does that on a, on a course level. I mean, I do think
2: that it's an interesting area for future research just for us to look at absolute price and just see, you know, are students much more likely to opt out of a $200 book than a, than a $50 book, just knowing that they may not have that extra 150 bucks. But yeah, I, I thought it was encouraging that we saw that there's not really much of a relationship or price sensitivity kind of suggests that that the savings is is doing its work there.
1: Speaking of surveys. Speaking of surveys. <laughs> uh, there was a question about the survey that we offer to students when they opt out, where they select what uh, their reason for opting out. I think it's a radio bullet, so they have to choose one option. Already own has always been a pretty significant percentage of those opt-outs. Jared, do you want to speak to what students are saying there and what we think they're saying?
2: This go round, especially. Um Already Own was the single largest category on our on our opt-out reason survey. The question that we got asked was, I've sometimes wondered that there are so many already own opt-outs. I wonder if it's because they choose that to explain that they already purchased it elsewhere for the current term, different from already-owned from previous semester. I think all we have to say there is that's an excellent point. That is uh, definitely something that is not clear in that language. So it would be very interesting to know something like purchased elsewhere this term versus I already had it, so didn't need to buy it again. Thank you.
1: Can you speak to the continuation course functionality that we have? We
2: do have functionality in the IA program to track when, let's say, you know, a full year bio course is using Campbell Bio for the entire year. We do have functionality that should prevent a student from having to opt out of purchasing it again in the the second term. That feature gets used very extensively, especially at our largest programs that comprise, you know, so much of, you know, the overall volume here. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing that already OWN kind of ends up being the largest thing in the context of that feature, I think largely doing the work that it's supposed
1: to be doing. Our next question and had to do with opt-in programs. A very small portion of our programs, we had some data on this that looked at the opt-in rates for items, and we have seen that it has been declining year over year. So from 2018 to 2021, it went down from 61% to 35%. And that's in spite of the overall size of these programs growing. Now, it's still a very small portion of our overall inclusive access programs. In fact, I think a lot of people think of inclusive access as synonymous with opt-out, so it's like inclusive about it. But as we've seen based relative to itself, we've seen it growing year over year, but we've seen the rates declining. Jared, do you have any explanations for that?
2: I, I may, I may. So I mean, the, I think the interesting tension here is that we have seen the number of licenses, opt-in centric programs kind of flatline from 2020 to 2021. In fact, 2021 opt-in licenses were actually a little bit lower than 2020. I think we, part of that may be timing. Um, we're still seeing some opt-in programs kind of wrap up. For all intents and purposes, it's pretty flat. And the question that we got, you know, is is it possible that opt-in has been in decline due to opt-out increasing, not necessarily due to failures in that kind of program? And I think that that's a totally possible explanation for the flatlining of licenses in opt-in programs that just, you know, new programs have, are more likely to be opt-out. Um, or that even some opt-in programs have converted to opt-out kind of more conventional IA programs. The thing that I thought was really interesting about this particular chart was what Ryan described about the declining participation rate for opt-in programs down from 61% to 35% in 2021. So that to me suggests that not only are the programs kind of flatlining in terms of popularity across campuses, but within these programs, um, students are finding the opt-in stuff less attractive. Part of that may be that publishers themselves are finding the economics of these opt-in programs to be less attractive than than they previously were. As opt-out has become the primary form of IA, um, opt-in has just kind of become less interesting to them. We've heard anecdotally that certain campuses have had IA pricing, lower pricing for opt-ins um, pulled by certain publishers. And so it's possible that we just have, we don't see the same amount of savings in these opt-in programs as we're seeing from elsewhere. I think in some cases, it's also just, you know, it's that convenience point that Ryan was getting at before that is so prevalent in in opt-out IA and EA is just quite, not a, not as much there in, in opt-in programs. They still have to do something
1: to get into the program. And so that may also be contributing to the decline. Yeah, I think that was 100% right. Like if opt-out, the growth of opt-out programs, if it has impacted the rate of opt-in, it is because of not that if something's opt-out, it's these are mutually exclusive data sets, but it would be the impact of the opt-out programs on what's inside the opt-in programs. And so that would mean that if the publishers are looking at the, you know, 90% sell through of opt-out and looking at this 35% opt-in and saying, you know what, we're not going to offer a good price in here, that would make the inclusive access opt-in programs less attractive. And if stores were looking at this and they put all their most compelling items in an opt-out program, what will be left in the opt-in program are like less, I don't know, required materials. And that would also explain some of this decline. Opt-ins have become
2: the extreme minority of quote-unquote IA programs. Student popularity is probably part of that equation.
1: Yeah. Do you have a guess on what the size of the number of licenses in opt-in programs is compared to opt-out plus opt-in?
2: I would guess that opt-in licenses are probably less than 5% of the total IA licenses at this point.
0: Price and convenience are driving students to digital with opt-out inclusive access programs leading the way. Let's listen as Jared and Ryan talk about the evolution equitable access will have for the campus stores, students, and institutions.
2: The future is always a good place to, uh, to close, so maybe we'll move on to our last section here on equitable access. I think the biggest Thing here was around kind of starting to track the impact of a program, um, so evolutionary and revolutionary as EA. So, Ra, you want to speak to that a little bit?
1: The question that came up was administrators were asking store managers, "Is IA or EA here to stay for a while, or are we going to see something new and revolutionary and come out?" And I think this kind of data that we found that in the Equitable Access Program. Students in it were 17% less likely to drop a course than students who opted out of it. Kind of suggests that this path forward is one that is much more steady state and future proof than anything else that we've come to. And it's because it will enhance the store's role within the academic institution and allow you to play a more advisory role on course materials. With equitable access, you're taking the entirety of the market share of your campus, in order to leverage that buying power to reduce the cost to students, it puts a ceiling on that price so that no student, every student knows that they, in no circumstance, need to pay more than your $199 fee or whatever it ends up at to get all their required course materials. And that makes it easier for them to budget. And it makes it easier for instructors to know when they're assigning materials that they don't need to worry about students not being able to afford the course. I think that as we continue to analyze what the academic impact of these programs can be, and of certain materials, we can start to help the store to take on this strategic role, this advisory role. And we can start to look at things that I think institutions have often turned a blind eye to, just like acting like, we don't know what textbooks cost, like, that's too hard and complicated. But we just estimate average based on I don't even know where they get those numbers. Sometimes they pick like 10 of the largest courses. And they're like, what's the average textbook price here, Uh, multiply by four, and it's just not right. And so, actually knowing that number with precision and then allowing us to take data on your campus and correlate it with retention rates with grades with demographic information. are students without textbooks more likely to come from underprivileged groups you know how does how does class how does financial aid status how does uh race and ethnicity how does national origin impact these things? If we start to discover inequity here and we know the actual cost of attendance, I think that we may come to a point where institutions see the importance of actually like directly financing some of this. And we may see effectively course materials become part of tuition, which if it weren't for the fact that there were physical books in the past and you could keep it out of the cost of tuition and act like uh, your tuition rates weren't increasing by the you know $800 students are spending on textbooks. I think it always would have been this way. And so I see this as like this type of service that you're offering your campus as a way to like permanently cement your role in course materials. And it's something that's, you know, it's friendly towards OER. If we see in the future, things move towards like video or I don't know, virtual reality modules. If it has a price and it's required for a course, there's no reason why it can't be included in equitable access program.
2: I think that that's probably as good a place as any to call it a wrap.
1: Yeah. Thank you for joining us for the podcast. Thanks for joining us at ICBA. We love working with you guys. Let's uh, let's keep things rolling.
2: Hope that next year we're all together um, wherever John Vivo tells us to
1: go.
0: Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Verbo Coffee Chat podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you get notified when a new episode is live.